Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Today's show is a real scorcher, just like the weather across most of the world right now. Brett and I host our old friend, Divine, to talk about his new startup. It helps the systemically excluded build wealth. We're joined by Denise Kwashi, former entrepreneur and now head of the Amazon Web Services Impact Accelerator for Black Founders that Divine and Solvent are going through right now. It includes a $30 million fund for underrepresented founders. In the second half, Ben Borodach, co-founder and CEO of the tax platform April, talks to me about, well, how to make taxes less taxing. I am a hard one to convince is a serial requester of extensions. Divine, it is always great to have you on the show. Yeah, Mainly because I like to, to say to it. say divine. Um, and you're up to something else that also has an exceptional name, um, Solvent. But catch us up on what's you haven't been on the show in you know over two years. It was the pre-COVID era. Walk us through this amazing journey that I mean, your life is an amazing journey, but catch us up to speed. What is going on right now and what is this new part of the journey? Yeah, um, I was in. Um, I had moved to Silicon Valley. I was. I, I got into corporate um, when we left before we last spoke, and uh, that whole thing was like just amazing for me, being able to break into corporate and in Silicon Valley and be around that whole ecosystem and learn so much. Um, I ended up going down to LA. From there, I was still working on Black FinTech. That's when we last spoke about last time I was here, and uh, the pandemic ended up hitting. Before the pandemic hit, I moved back to uh, back to the East Coast. And over the pandemic, I just had this idea in my head that wouldn't leave. Black really didn't come together the way that I wanted it to. So I said, you know, I, I need to move on from that. And I started figuring out, like, what's next for me? What am I really good at? Where my talents lie? But thinking about, through all that, it was really just this idea in my mind to empower the demographic I come from. Um, I really was looking at financial empowerment and wealth building. Not just financial literacy, but how do you take financial literacy and then leverage that and get and go to the next level. And for me, entrepreneurship was that was a key thing. So that's why I kept the same idea around financial literacy and entrepreneurship education. But really, I started focusing on the fi- the financial empowerment and wealth building components. And I started thinking about that over the pandemic. Um, started getting to work on you know the pitch deck, just flushing out the idea of what I wanted this to be, um, and really organizing my thoughts around it. Built a website, did all that. And when I had all those 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 front-facing pieces together for both investors and and um and the and the public, I started applying to accelerators. Uh, I came across the AWS uh, Impact Accelerator for Black Founders, and when I saw that, I, I like I like their approach. I like the positioning of what they were trying to do, um, doing this in a whole different way, and I was really impressed with it. So I applied, and I got in, which was an amazing. I can't even describe it. I got really had tears in my eye when when when, when Denise did the, it called me up and, and we were on there with with uh with Howard Wright as well, and she was like kind of like leading me on, not really like telling me oh you got accepted. She's like oh I have a few more questions for you. So I was like all right cool. 
So I'm answering the questions. You know, I'm, I'm like, dang, I hope this goes well. And I hope I say the right things and all that. And then she asked Howard. She uh, took, gave it to Howard. And she was like, Howard, you got anything else to say? And he was like, well, I really don't to say, but I, I want to make a statement. And he, and he, and he laid it on me. Uh, congratulations, you're coming to, you got to include an AWS and you're coming to Seattle. And awesome. I was just like, just, just amazed, man. Yeah, for the listeners not seeing the video, Denise was grinning ear to ear on the slow roll. <laughs> Denise, you know, you're an entrepreneur yourself within Amazon because this accelerator really is your baby. Tell us how, you know, this came about, what your vision was that inspired, you know, starting this. Yeah, sure. So I'm a former founder myself, um, a non-technical founder, black woman, um, solo founder. So I had all the the deck stacked up against me um, in creating a startup, a tech startup at that. And, um, you know, when I decided to come work for AWS, I was really kind of torn because I didn't really want to work for some large company and, um, you know, kind of just be another number. And when I learned that there was this entire startups team that were all former founders and they were building programs and resources for startups, I I thought it was a perfect fit for me. Um, But, you know, quickly when I joined, I realized there was a lot of programs that just really weren't addressing the problems that I knew my community had um, and other communities that were disadvantaged. And so, you know, one of the first things I told my boss is like, I'm just going to spend the next six months and just write papers. And, you know, Amazon's culture is very much a narrative driven company. And so we just write papers all the time, right? We don't do PowerPoint presentations, we write docs. And so I just started writing docs and trying to figure out exactly, you know, what, what sort of things are we needing to do for our community? I went to Afrotech in 2019, which is a large tech conference for uh, Black technologists. And I was surprised at how many Black founders were, were going to a conference that was really primarily built around recruitment and not necessarily about startup fundraising, startup business development, startup technical, um, scaling your business. And uh, we had a, a founder's brunch that ended up having a line wrapped around the corner to get in uh, to meet with us to talk about what AWS does for startups and really having conversations with founders like Divine, you know, we really kind of understood that we were addressing problems of like the masses for startups, but we weren't really addressing the problems that Black founders, women founders, LGBTQIA founders were having. And so I got back to my office in New York and immediately started writing again um, and built this program that was really going to be super unique to the accelerator landscape. So we call it an accelerator, but really for us, it's just extending their runway and giving them an opportunity to be part of our extended team, right? And so there's so much that we've learned from Divine and others like him and started to kind of build more programs based off of that data. Um, so the, the accelerator is eight weeks, but you know, Divine knows that you know, we're in it for the long haul um, beyond the eight weeks. And you know, we're doing some things that are very different than what other accelerators do. Um, we don't consider ourselves to be any sort of um, 
competition to the YCs, we actually see ourselves as a pre-accelerator to those types of um, accelerators and a ways for us to kind of make connections into other accelerators, seed funds, and, and make introductions across the entire um, Amazon side of the business. So we've connected a number of our startups that are part of the cohort to other groups within Amazon. So like the Alexa team and Amazon Fashion, Amazon Music. So depending on what they're building, we're increasing their opportunities within the Amazon family as well as outside. So um, it's been a long road to kind of get this program going um, in a really large company, but um, we have the entire backing of our leadership team um, all the way up to um, Andy and Andy. And so we're super excited to have this program be live now and getting ready to get geared up for the women's program um, in a few weeks. Congratulations. It sounds like great work. Um, you know, this is a question for both of you, actually, in, in respect to the uh, the black community and, and, you know, lower to middle income households during the pandemic. You know, one thing um, that research is interestingly showing now that is that UBI, um, we see, um, think, you know, UBI trials around the world creates entrepreneurs at a much higher rate than in society generally. So um, do you think that the pandemic and as a result of, you know, obviously the changes in work, um, but also the stimulus checks that were, were there, um, stimulated uh, people in the community to, to look at starting their own businesses more seriously? Um, you know, from my, I'll let Divine kind of jump in, but from my perspective, I think where we were really focusing a lot of our time on is, you know, the, what, what happened to George Floyd, like when George Floyd was murdered, um, we saw a lot of, you know, VC funds starting to kind of really pay attention, um, to black startups. And I think that that's kind of really what kind of jump started a lot of startups that were kind of, um, you know, had it more as like a side hustle and they were still working like a full-time job. Right. And then they were able able to finally go all in on their right, business, yeah. right? Um, because now VC funds are actually starting to pay attention to Black businesses. And so um, from our perspective, that's where we kind of seen a lot of those more new ideas or old ideas that have been re-energized, um, you know, from the from all of the outcry related to George Floyd. Yeah, that's interesting that that social event had such an impact, Divine. Yeah, um, Wow. The event with George Floyd was really um, was really a, a turning point in a, in a lot of different things, and it really it really pushed forth a lot of different agendas, and and really brought a lot of things out that needed to be addressed for so long that that haven't that hasn't been addressed. Things that still need to be addressed around corporate responsibility, um, how how are they engaging with these communities, being responsible, and what they do socially. You know what I mean? And and that put forth a lot of a lot of uh, put forth a lot of questions and brought that to the table to where these corporations now had to do something. And the black community as a whole, nationwide, actually globally, was really, really chiming in on like, yo, you, you has to, things have to change. I mean, we still have things going on. So it's like, we don't want this, we don't want that, that wave to subside. We want, we want to keep riding that. We want to make sure that yeah. these corporations are being responsible, um, and especially in our communities, right? Uh, making money off our communities, leveraging our culture, and this is always this has always been done. Yet there's been no no type of no type of um, real initiative for them to empower us. And in this time now, stimulus checks was was I, right, but really it, we need more than that. It, it, it takes more yeah, than a stimulus check to really yeah. to really push these 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 things that we need 
that these black communities need um, to really to really become empowered. Yeah, and I, I think I just kind of want to just edit something really quickly. So I, I know that we're saying you know the event with George Floyd, but I want to be super clear that George Floyd was murdered on camera um, and played for millions around the world. And so you know the way that we see it at Amazon, and this is all the way up to you know Andy, is that uh, you know George Floyd was murdered. Black lives do matter, and it's not that other lives don't matter, but it, it really changed the landscape for how we think about um, business and how we think about events and programs and and how we're supporting these additional communities. So, um, you know, it's, it's one oh, of I those just find it, things. Yeah. I find it really interesting that this, this triggered people into, you know, not only getting support from VCs, obviously, but triggered more people in the black community to say, now's my time. To, to step out and, and, and try this, which is not a correlation I would have necessarily drawn from, from seeing those two things happening in sequence. Yeah. So I found that very interesting. And I'm glad you called that out, Denise. I was going to head in a similar path to, you know, to talk. Well, I mean, this is my backyard. We had just moved back to the Twin Cities when George Floyd was murdered, you know, and those were some of my old stomping grounds, right? And so to be able to take my kids to George Floyd's square and to talk to them about you know racism and how this the system that they enjoy is not the system that everyone gets to enjoy and it's I, I think one of the most powerful things is the event made it unavoidable like you couldn't turn an eye away from it anymore and it became something we all have to deal with and it's been great you know here to watch how um, the Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank and Bremer Bank have all come together to bring the first black bank into the Twin Cities. First Independence Bank is open to branch here. But, you know, I'd love to go personal for a second because the data is the data that, you know, less than 3% of venture capital goes to black founded startups. And if both of you don't mind sharing, what were the biggest challenges you, you felt you faced and how do we systemically within the startup community and then more broadly in financial services, how do we break down systemic barriers? Which did you encounter? And if you could change something, what would that be? Um, from from my perspective, it's it's all about connections, right? Um, you know, people write checks to people they know or people that look like them or people that they have similar interests in, right? And so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, Black people um, have trouble getting funding. Their biggest problem is getting in front of investors, right? Those that will write the checks. And then oftentimes um, when they are in front of those investors, um, they're pitching a product or a service that investors just don't get, right? They, they, they don't understand it because they're not part of those communities. They don't have those same problems. And so they're, they're already just kind of in a point of like, well, you know, I, I don't understand it. I don't get the market. Um, so if they do get those meetings, then it's, it's often falls flat. And so I, I would say that's probably one of the biggest barriers. And then the second barrier is that we don't have a lot of examples, right? We don't we don't have a lot of examples that um, we can track back to and take a look at others that have done it and learned from them, right? And so when we go online, we search on YouTube or we search places, um, we're starting to see more of that change today. But previously, you know, there were not a lot of examples of Black founders, you know, getting checks written on paper napkins. And so, you know, when you see these big media 
um, announcements that are going out and they're saying these startups, you know, just got, you know, 5 million, 20 million, $30 million checks. Um, you know, they're all straight white men. And so there's not a lot of examples for us to learn from, and we're not talking about it to each other in our own communities. So we're not learning from each other and we don't have those connections. And so I would say that those are probably the, the biggest barriers, right, is figuring out how do we even get those connections and intros into the ones that are actually writing the checks. Fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about the accelerator program itself. Now, Divine, this is only just hot off the press, this announcement, but have you actually started on the accelerator program or are you about to? No, we, we started. Um, we're actually in, going into our fifth week. Um, Great. I can't, I can't say enough about this accelerator and the experience. Uh, the first week we were in Seattle at a, uh, AWS headquarters, Amazon. It, it was an amazing experience. Um, I got to give it to Denise and her team. They actually they really rolled out the red carpet for us to really um to really position us. I mean the content, the programming, everything is just so on point. I'm like I'm having a time of my life, honestly, and I, I wish it would never end. You know what I mean? Um, but you know the eight weeks beyond the eight weeks, I, I know it extends beyond that, and I'm excited to be a part of this. I'm excited to um to, you know say that I've I've done it and, and I've been through it, but the program is just is just is 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 a class. Denise, I mean, obviously you guys have been running, um, you know, these these sort of programs outside these communities before, but, you know, is there anything that you have, you'd have to do, you had to do differently this time or from a design perspective that you, you've changed? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think we leaned a lot on partners and our community, right? So we didn't want to be the authority of, you know, what the child I am black, but I didn't want to be the authority of like the challenges like black founders have or LGBTQIA plus founders have. And so we started aligning ourselves with partners and um, former founders or current founders um, to bring into the program. So the uniqueness of the program is that it's hybrid. So we fly out. We pay for flight and hotel for the CEO and CTO to come out to our headquarters the first week. And then we fly them out in week eight to New York um, to, to meet, do like week with investors. Um, and then between that, weeks two through seven, um, we're really working virtually. And so we're bringing in founders that have walk the same path as them. We're bringing in investors for investor panels. And so we're really leveraging our connections um, within Amazon to kind of bring those into the fold. So, you know, we definitely have had, you know, speakers come in and talk about their journey, being Black, you know, building in tech, um, how they've been able to kind of get fundraise. And a lot of the speakers have offered to, you know, continue those conversations offline with the founders as well, too. And so I think that that's probably the, the very uniqueness. We did not want this to be about Amazon. You know, if this was about Amazon, um, then we failed. And so, you know, while there are some core programming around technology and AWS in the cloud. A lot of it is really founder accountability, getting the founders together for fun, um, you know, networking opportunities, and then matching them with technical and business mentors that kind of help them accelerate their business during the eight weeks. Awesome. That sounds excellent. Divine, um, you know, the, the, the expression drinking from a fire hose comes to mind in terms of learning curve. Um, but you know, I mean, you, this is not your first venture. Uh, you know, you've you've done uh, done stuff before, but um, you know, what have you learned out of this process? You know, I know you're still going through it, but what have you learned that um, has been surprising, or you know, that you really feel will be advantageous to the stuff you're working on now? It goes back to what Denise was saying earlier about about you know about funding. 
It's really about the, you know, the connections. They're putting us in front of people. They're putting us in, in, in situations um, and, and opportunities that we would probably never get in our lifetime if we did it outside of no program, right? Um, you know me, Brett, I'm, I'm self-taught. I have eighth grade formal education, self-taught beyond that, got my GED. But really, I've always been somebody who's valued knowledge, right? And and I've always been somebody that hasn't been afraid to go get it, to go after it. And and that's like my biggest thing, like being in this, being in this, this accelerator has exposed me to just so many high level yeah. thought processes and, and, and ways that AWS does things and Amazon does things. It's just, you would never get that. Like, how can you, like, it's almost like paying behind the curtain, right? You, you right. get a chance to peek behind the curtain, you get in and you're on the inside now. You're no longer on the outside. You don't feel like you're on the outside. Um, and, th- and that is invaluable. You can't, you can't put a dollar amount on that to what we're learning, the exposure we're getting, the connections we're making. And Denise is really making sure that happens at a high level for us. And, 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 you know, it's so much to even, you know, I'm still processing information from the first week. Oh. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like high level, man. So, you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative of it, but it's, it's my wheelhouse. It's where I thrive. And, and, sure, and, sure. and, and, and I, and I, I know I'm going to take this and just go to the next level with everything around what I want to do and accomplish in life beyond just the startup. Well, you know, I, I think that's phenomenal. Um, Denise, um, you know, Divine said he heard about the program through LinkedIn, through social. Uh, you know, how are you attracting, um, you know, founders to to the incubator or the accelerator rather? Yeah, so I think that that was like one of the biggest surprises is that, you know, we did very little to no like email marketing on this thing. Um, you know, we were very strategic about, you know, getting on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn. Um, all of our executives, as I mentioned, I had a meeting with Andy Jassy and Adam Solipsky, who run Amazon and AWS about this program to go get that money <laughs> for these startups. And so once I did that, they were all in and they wanted to promote it. And so all of the executives posted it on their LinkedIn. Um, and that's really where we saw just kind of like this grassroots movement, um, just kind of across um, all the different channels. And so the majority of our applications came in from social. Um, glad to hear Divine heard about it on LinkedIn. Um, and then um, a lot of referrals as well, too. So, you know, we have a lot of employees and they will, were all behind it. We have um, at Amazon, we have employee resource groups, so affinity groups, and we have a Black employee network. And so the Black employee network was very instrumental as well in promoting it to um, Black employees at Amazon, and they wanted to see it succeed. And so there was a lot of referrals that came in. So really, it's their community, right? We wanted to kind of find startups that um, were kind of right at that right spot that we felt were really good for this program and tap into our connections and our network. And, and put this in front of them. So as we look forward to women's program, we'll, we'll do a very similar rollout on social, and then we'll align with specific women group um, programs that target women startups, women-led startups, um, and uh, do a very similar um, promotion. You know, we've got a couple of uh, regular um, guests on the show, like Lita Gliffitz and... Um, uh, Theo Lau and others who are big proponents of women in tech. Um, so I should put you in touch with them as well separately because I think they'll be they'll be helpful at, at a minimum for helping you promote and get the word out. What's the timeline sure. like on the women program? Women's program. Yeah, yeah. So applications actually open this month. So um, we're looking at the 18th, but it might be a little bit later just because we're really focused on week eight for Black founders. But 
It would be in July. Um, applications were run for about three weeks. Um, and then we're looking for the program to kick off in September. So um, just like Divine mentioned, that week one will be at our headquarters in Amazon, um, Seattle. So on that point, um, you know, how can people find out more about the Accelerator program um, in general? Yeah, so um, they certainly can follow us on LinkedIn. It's probably one of the best things. Um, so AWS Startups on LinkedIn, that's where we'll post the links. But we have links there to our Black Founders page. We'll be posting the link to the, the Women's Founder page. If they're interested in learning more about the 25 startups that were selected, they can see that on LinkedIn as well, too. So just AWS at AWS Startups on LinkedIn. Uh, it's probably easier than giving you a very long link. And uh, they can see the 25 startups that were selected, learn more about what Divine is building as well as uh, the 24 other startups that are building as well, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to take the limelight away from Divine, right? <laughs> but um, can you mention some of the other um, startups that, that you know, you, you find are particularly unique? Yeah, it's hard to pick um, one or two two out of out of the bunch of 25 but um we have a startup called church space um they're doing something really interesting they they call themselves the the airbnb of church spaces and so essentially mm -hmm. there's a, a they have a lot of data that shows that um, a lot of churches have event venues and they've gone unused and unutilized. Wow. And so they're utilizing the spaces. They've created a platform that's booking and it allows church um, pastors and owners of churches to be able to kind of maximize their funding, right? And for leveraging out those spaces. And so nonprofits, schools, those types of things are wanting to utilize spaces yeah. and they can use these, these venues. Um, so I think that's a really cool one. Um, there's also a there's also this other startup called iGage. Um, so she's doing something really cool with AI technology where um, she can actually, um, she, woman founder, so she's built this technology that allows um, you to be able to kind of see whether or not your driver of like a bus or a driver of like Amazon trucks um, has been drinking or is impaired some kind of way, right? Before they actually take flight and either getting on a plane or in a bus or a train or something like that. And so very high technology. Um, we have another startup, another woman founder called Side Deploy is the startup. And so she's building a security SaaS platform. Um, so there, there's so many. There, there's a ton of that's them great. that's building really cool stuff. Um, and then there are some healthcare startups that we have as well, too. So um, this woman founder, her name is Elise. She's building a startup called Care Copilot. Um, and I'm, I actually love this one because my grandmother actually has dementia. And um, my parents are her main caretaker. And so Elise went through the same exact thing and she didn't know what to do or where to go or how to care for her mom mm -hmm. who um, had dementia. And so she's developed this marketplace tool that provides guidance and counselors and wow. tooling that allows you to kind of understand like, where do you go? How do you get help? How do you file for different types of Medicare supported opportunities? And I love that because I, I think America is one of those types of countries where we just don't care about our, our vets and we don't care about our elderly and um, talking more about, you know, elderly care is so important. And so I, I love that what she's building and she's a solo founder, technical background, and then a woman founder. So again, I, I just can't pick one or two. I can yeah, go all day and talk about these really startups. Compelling but stories. Yeah. yeah, I we have a good range from finance to technical to healthcare, education, and even travel startups as well too. So a lot of good fun ones. 
Now, Divine, I know you guys are in stealth and it's early on, but what can you tell us about this latest venture and, um, you know, how can our community help? Um, yeah, Solvent, um, financial empowerment and wealth building platform focused on the system impacted. Normally when you hear, you know, when you think system impacted, you automatically think incarcerated, formerly incarcerated. However, we're really redefining that and, we're, and we broke that up into four, four segments. First of all, socioeconomically disadvantaged, formerly incarcerated, the family, friends, and loved ones of the formerly incarcerated and or incarcerated, which is, they're often overlooked, um, and, the, and the fourth being the incarcerated. So uh, that being said, we're actually in talks with some really, really major um, companies. We can, we, I can announce that we are announcing here first that we have a, we have a sponsor bank. So happy about that. Fantastic. Uh, and we're in talks. Yeah, we're in talks with um, with Mastercard and Visa. Kind of see where we're going to go with with that direction. All right for you, Ben. Uh, yeah. And we're and we're focused just on getting this technology done, um, and really really launching this big. And I'm excited about it, uh, week eight in New York City. Can't wait for that. Awesome. Well, you know, let us know how we can help. Uh, you know, when you get closer to launch, uh, we'll be happy to get you back on and and. Um, support the process and Denise if there's any others in the fintech space uh, you know in either this program or the WIMS program that you're kicking off uh, for sure let us know how we can assist awesome yeah and and Divine make sure you uh, let your um, your business mentor know that to connect you with the Amazon pay people I just thought about that okay got it thank Good. you cool yeah <laughs> Well, that's it. Um, it you know, a very interesting session. Thanks for joining us today, uh, Denise uh, from the AWS team and, and Divine from Solvent um, and, you know, um, and, and a regular on the show. Great to have you back on, Divine, and, and stay well, brother, and, and I hope uh, I, we can catch you, uh, you know, when, when you're back in New York, hopefully. Likewise. Thank you so much, Brett. Appreciate you and the team. Thanks, awesome. for, having, thanks for having me. Thanks, Divine. Thanks, Brett. Yeah. All right, guys, well, listen, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after the break with some more uh, fintech goodness. We're very excited to announce our newest podcast to join the Provoke Media family, The Futurists. Already it's our fastest growing podcast globally and we've had some phenomenal guests. Kevin J. Anderson, the author in the Dune Universe and creative consultant on the Oscar-winning movie of the same name. Dr. Harry Kluwer, the founder of Beyond Imagination, the creators of the avatar robot known as Beomni. Andrew Hessel, a synthetic biologist. PJ Manny, an ethical futurist. Dr. Roman Yaplonsky, Ross Dawson, and many more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the potential of our future, how futurists think about and explore the future, Join Robert Tursek and I as we explore the world of tomorrow and the visionaries working to create it. The Futurist Podcast. We will see you in the future. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. 
By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Often taxes end up in a silo. Right. And part of that silo is almost excluded from how we think about our financial lives. It's a one time event rolling into April 15th or in my family's case, one that happens after our extensions about to expire. Right. Where, where we scramble around it. And I'm curious as two people who spend way too much time actually thinking about the role of taxes. What do you think the industry gets wrong when we think about taxes? Yeah, th- th- thanks for that, Jason. So the, w- the way we see it is, you know, you kind of live your, your whole life, you experience your financial life, and afterwards, you have to climb this really big mountain of being able to aggregate all your data and, and basically become compliant and, and, do, and do your tax filing. And basically, we get this completely wrong. And we have all these notions in the industry of your maximum refund guarantee and getting you the best tax advice you deserve, but we've actually missed that boat. The time to get you that advice was actually during the fiscal year. It, it ended on at the end of December. And what we need to do as an industry is have a paradigm shift, uh, switching the way that we think about taxes from this one-time retrospective to something that's more continuous and engaging, helping consumers create strategies throughout the year uh, in order to get you know, real financial wellness and financial inclusion by leveraging the tax code uh, to their unique situation. So proactively versus retroactively. Ronan, I'm curious, do you have a similar take? Is this something you, you know, fight about when you guys get in you know, the, the conference room to have uh, strategy and product roadmap discussions? Yeah, so as a, as a product guy, I would say, you know, from my narrow product perspective, I think what uh, most financial institutions are missing is the, you know, taxes are sort of the, you know, the, the forgotten child of, of fintech or financial services. Uh, everybody's sort of scrambling around to add more and more ancillary services. So if you're uh, you know, everybody wants to add more banking products, credit cards, short-term loans, long-term loans, student loans, all kinds of different uh, fireworks, but nobody really talks about taxes. So why is taxes like the missing piece of the puzzle here? Uh, you know, it touches everyone's lives. It's anywhere between 30 and 50% uh, take from what we uh, earn, and then nobody's really, you know, dealing with it. And so how can we create good financial uh, wellness products without actually dealing with taxes. Well, I, I think that that's worth unpacking for a second because intuitively, you know, you just say, well, you know, we, we think about the income tax um, and the way that it it sort of evolves in in the United States where you've got different brackets for different income levels. And so that should theoretically be pretty straightforward. You calculate, you know, someone's tax, but then you realize that in the U.S., this is actually tied to a lot of our socioeconomic policies. We're distributing $60 billion through the earned income tax credit. We treat employees differently than we treat contractors. We have benefits for retirement, and the list goes you know, on and on. And so when we talk about sort of the need to have proper tax planning, this is what we're actually talking about. How do you help the mass market 
um, just regular people actually take advantage of this because it's really complicated. It's kind of endless, right? You could hire a professional and spend hours and it's not, it's not economical and it's not really within grasp for most people. And so what we're talking about is in a digital, in a digital way, how can you think about making the tax code, the implications to a specific individual by understanding who they are, not just their financial situation, but also how many kids do they have or do they own a home? How are they saving for retirement? And how do you help them uh, create a proper structure that, that makes sense for them? Where's the biggest gap in this? So, you know, it is such a big problem and it's been long been talked about, you know, by some of you know the suppliers who make tons of money doing this. How come no one's been able to address it properly? I think it's just because it is a very, very complicated domain. So, you know, we, we joke about the, the Moore's law of taxes. You know, it's just going in one direction. The tax code keeps, you know, increasing in, in size exponentially every couple of years. I think by now, if I'm not mistaken, the, the U.S. tax code is like 4 million words uh, and aggregate uh, spread around over 800 different forums on the IRS's website. So it is a very difficult problem to tackle. But I think what people are missing is that all of the relevant data is already out there uh, because people use digital platforms. And so the way the current solutions are siloed is just because, you know, these are platforms that were built, you know, 30, 40 years ago when access to data wasn't really digitally available. Uh, and now where the data is available, then leveraging that data to really create a continuous experience is something that, you know, as a, as a vision definitely uh, exists. Um, so I think my take is just, just you know, now the the timing is, is you know, more sort of uh, ripe uh, than any other time uh, in the past because data is there, consumers are, are there, consumer behavior is there by using digital tools. And so I think that creates the perfect storm for, you know, taxes to become way more uh, smarter in the way we deal with it. The obvious sort of question that, you know, we sort of looked at is how crazy is it that we go all year long and we only find out what our tax situation is a few months after the year? And, you know, for some people, that's going to continue because they've got really complex structures or they've got a, they're, you know, a, a minority owner in a business or they have K1s and they're participating in a fund. And so, you know, those things might continue, but certainly for your, you know, prototypical person that's earning a wage, I mean, this you can forecast this thing pretty reliably. So shouldn't we, just like we have a credit score, you know, we have credit balances, like, shouldn't we be able to tell you like with some reasonable margin for error, roughly what your tax situation is going to look like, and then give you um, you know, the opportunity to adjust that to make sure that you're up to date, you're not going to get penalties. Or if you're overpaying, you know, average tax refund in the United States is over $3,000 this past year. Um, according to the IRS website, like that's a lot of money. Average consumer, consumer credit card debt is over $5,000. Like there's opportunities to help consumers better manage their PL throughout the year, uh, reduce their interest costs, improve their credit worthiness. And, and this all sort of like stems from tax as an undercurrent or a linchpin mm -hmm. and being able uh, to pull on those levers. And, and one of the things that I wanted to build on that, that Ronen said, which is sort of the why now. And so the tax code is robust. It, it keeps growing. And you've got federal, you've got state, you've got local. And to be able to create a picture for someone, you have to be able to harmonize these different pieces. And over the last couple of, of years, what we've seen is actually a maturation of data science and machine learning capabilities that took this really arduous challenge of basically translating the, the tax code, which is just law, into algebra uh, from something that would take hundreds of people 
um, and many years to be able to do, which is why we haven't seen many new entrants in the space to something that's actually uh, achievable through human-assisted AI and data science um, using various no-code capabilities. And so now you can get that done in maybe two years and a couple of dozen people. Well, you started to answer my question. I, you know, I think of the tax code is like the universe, ever expanding, right? The, you know, just keeps the farthest reaches keep changing and going further and further. And the complexity of someone's life is also not static, right? So I need to find this intersection of how do I find the right point in that person's arc in terms of, you know, I had a child like Kevin or like uh, no longer have dependents or I'm retiring, right? And that changes, you know, you called it algebra, but I, I mean, is it truly algebra or are we getting into some more complex mathematics here in terms of the analogy of the problem we need to solve? Well, I think you have to distill them into two, right? And and actually, I think that's sort of one of the major opportunities in the market is if you look at the products and the way that the market thinks about tax today, they think about forms. And so you've got a 1040 form mm. and a Schedule C and a Schedule D. And so we ask you questions that relate to these forms. But actually, that's not how most people think. You know, most people think about their family and their wage and their home. And so if we can help people kind of build a profile around them and then run the tax code in the background, um, this sort of obfuscates the complexity and helps the person focus on the pieces of information that are actually really important, which is like, I had a kid this year, that's going to impact my tax situation. It's also going to impact my financials and how I should plan. And tax can be a great prompt you know, to, to surface that information. And that's sort of how we think about it. When you think about the tax law and the tax codification itself, I mean, Ultimately, it, it is algebra. We're talking about sort of uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication. The challenge is that you have lots of exceptions and you have lots of interdependencies. And so being able to deal with that in sort of a, in a computer science, data science driven way is what allows you to basically offer a much more uh, simplified uh, offering to the consumer. And we saw that already this year. I mean, the average person was able to get through our tax flow in about 15 minutes um, you know, according to IRS uh, reported statistics, that that number is several hours on average. And so that this is a belief of sort of taking this time, which is arduous and not that productive, and actually using it as something which is kind of like a federally mandated financial health check, and taking that into something that we can make in, into sort of a more constructive use of time, and then taking that data and helping you make use of it to make better informed financial decisions. Yeah, I would also yeah. add from a user experience perspective, um, it's not just about doing the math right. It's actually making the tax code more accessible and more understandable. Um, I mean, we were super surprised to, to learn that, you know, one of the most common questions by consumers are, what are dependents? And now that might sound a bit funny, but actually, if you go to the IRS's website, there is a, a four-page long PDF that explains what are dependents. And so can't we really create a, a much better user experience explaining what are dependents, you know, using a much more, I would say, modern tone of voice uh, and how you convey all of these tricky questions. Um, so things about, you know, your, your, your status, your family status, and even the, the most basic, basic things that you would assume most consumers will know um, are not that trivial, apparently. Um, and, and so I think it's it's getting the math right, but but actually also getting the whole user experience uh, around that in a much more uh, accessible way. What other surprises did you uncover that you, you know you either took for granted or 
you know, were non-obvious that would be challenges to delivering a solution like this? Well, I would, I would build on what Ronan just said, which is, you know, where we went sort of is, Jason, where, where your mind was going, which is there's all these complex calculations and helping people deal with the evolving landscape of capital gains and crypto and all these other things is going to be where all the headache is going to be. And then when you uh, sort of start dealing with just, you know, people and you look at sort of like what does what, what does the profile of Americans look like? And you realize actually that a lot of the complexity where people get tripped up are these questions of like, how many dependents do I, do I have? Well, most of us probably interpret that as how many children do I have? But from a tax perspective, there are real implications um, of, you know, which spouse maybe gets to claim that dependent and how much credit uh, they get back. So for example, we saw we have about a million divorces a year, I believe in the United States. And so that means 2 million divorced people, you know, you compound that over time. You've got a lot of people that might have children and how that gets allocated from a tax perspective, um, first of all, is, is difficult. It can be emotional. Um, and, and it's not always straightforward. We actually saw this year that there were spouses that alternated years on who got to claim the dependent. But then sometimes that gets mixed up and it can get you know submitted to the IRS and has to go, it gets kicked back and you have to help people correct it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's these questions uh, which often pertain to the sort of someone's uh, life at the end of the day, you know, um, um, it also could be like filing status, you know, is it married? Those questions around married filing separately, married, um, filing together, head of household, uh, these things can get people tripped up and it's intimidating. And so a lot of the process is just, you know, sort of smoothing it out and, and giving people the confidence that they can do this and that their circumstance is something that the law is accommodated for and, and sort of not getting them flustered. I love the idea of confidence in this because I'd say no one necessarily feels confident in the U.S. about you know their taxes and the status and the answers they give. Right? Um, no self incrimination here. Uh, how do you go about when you don't have a person on the other end of this? How do you build confidence in both the process and the tool to get them there? Bernard is a well, resident product expert. Yeah, why don't you take a cut at that one? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think, first of all, creating uh, trust within fintech or financial services is always difficult. Um, it's not just a, a small iOS app where you download, play a game, and, and you forget about it the next morning. So I think the, the real uh, challenge here is re- really creating that bond between us, uh, the consumer, and the partnering financial institution. Um, and I think because we work through other financial institutions, it's a, let's call it a B2B2C model, um, then in part, we already rely on the bond between the financial institution and, and its customers. If you're banking with the same bank for the past decade or so, you've already built a certain trust. And so you know when that bank partners with us and we create that um, holistic product together, um, then it's something you can trust. But of course, it's not just about the, the financial institutions. We go uh, through lots of, um, lots of product tweaks along the way to create that comfort where, as I've said previously, the, the UX actually creates that, that comfort, that tone of voice, uh, that somebody is actually working for you behind the scenes uh, versus you working for uh, the taxman. Hope it makes sense. No, it does. And when you think about smoothing this product and process out, you know, you're still living a little bit in the middle ground here of how do you, you know, help them kind of smooth out on a year basis. When you look into the future, right, with the beachhead you've built, 
What's the big vision around how you incorporate tax and get people to think about this as a lever that can be pulled just as investing in their 401k and what their asset allocation is and the mix and what they do and what other parts of the system do you begin to integrate with? I, so, I think it's twofold for, sorry, Bill. Um, no, no, go ahead. First of all, I really think, and, and pardon the cliche, I think you know taxes should be working for you versus the other way around. Uh, and I think things like when you when you say you know something like tax planning you you immediately think about America's top billionaires who pay almost nothing because the system uh, quote unquote works for them I think people you know uh, regardless of their income level should have proper uh, planning where the taxes actually work in their benefit uh, that's one and uh, the second thing I think when it comes to the actual filing you know my sort of audacious vision is to, is to get to a part where we frictionlessly file, meaning we already work for you all year long behind the scenes. When the dreaded April 15th comes along, you just get a nice screen that says, hey, Jason, this is everything we have uh, We have about you. Just click review and submit, and that's it. You don't have to spend two weekends in your basement parents or take a couple of days off work, start getting all of that anxiety bundled up together. So I think in, ter in terms of vision, this is where we want to go to. And, and maybe just one analogy to, to think about that is like, you know, the way that I think many of us feel when we go to file taxes is it's just this large mountain that you have to kind of climb in a very short period of time at the end of the year. And sort of like, how can we create a very, the analogy we like to use is how can you create this like sort of very incremental incline that somebody has to walk up throughout the rest of the year. And when they get to the end to file, like Ronan said, it's just like another step and it just happens for you. And the key is to create incentives. You know, when you hear tax planning, your eyes roll to the back of your head. And you're like, this is going to be something boring. It's not going to actually impact my life. But it, I think it's about showing people that this impacts their bottom line, that by, you know, engaging in this, you know, they sold one stock at a gain and there's another stock and another brokerage that they didn't realize that they should sell at a loss to offset that. And it's about identifying those opportunities and building the awareness that this is putting money back in their pocket. Listen, if you can solve what feels to me come spring, like I'm smacking into a cliff, not even a mountain to climb, but, you know, make it that gentle incline. I think that is uh, something definitely worthy uh, of a problem to solve. So for you know, listeners interested in either partnering or getting the app, where can they download it, learn more? Um, how do they get on to that gentle arm wrap? Yeah, I mean, April is the is going to be the fastest way for fintech to uh, easily and rapidly deploy personal income tax products. So we're available, um, you know, as a service to to fintechs in the United States. Uh, we're working today with uh, some of the largest uh, digital banks, uh, large financial institutions, uh, adjacent players in the payroll space and employer space. And so the best way uh, to work with us is is via those channels and in offering. Uh, that we believe comes in context with uh, with the rest of your financial life. And so that's really the belief behind April is not to have to recreate the silos that Rodin was talking about, but actually embed this alongside your checking, your savings, your deposit, and your investing, which is actually how you get the synergy and, and get the value that we just talked about. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for sharing. R appreciate it. Look forward to uh, getting to trial the product. Thanks for having us, Jason. Thank you very much. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. 
This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.